Today I'll be uh, preaching for you from uh, the Epistle of Hebrews, chapter 12, starting from verse 3 through verse 11. Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you this morning that you would speak through your word to your people this morning. I pray that I would get out of the way and your word would be proclaimed boldly and clearly that the heart that receive it, receive it in faith and obedience. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Sometimes I think about what, if I were to summarize the message of the Bible from beginning to end, if you were to think about a word or two that may describe what the Bible's message is, many words would come to our mind. Some of them may be about redemption, about atonement, about the work of Christ. Uh, for me, when I think about that, I, work, I think about the word paradox. And paradox basically means it's a seemingly, seemingly absurd statement that may look self-contradictory, that when investigated, may prove to be well-founded. I see the Bible full of paradoxes, and today, the message that we have today has a strong and very difficult paradox that we are faced with. Um, long time ago, when medicine were invented, it was, there was no uh, sugar coating. It was a message, or, or it was a, a, a dose of medicine without any sweeteners. Uh, if it's bitter, it's bitter, but it's for your own good. Take it. Trust me, just take it. Now, in modern medicine, a lot of the medication, especially for pediatrics and even for adults, it has a a sugar coat. I can tell you from the very beginning right now, this message is not sugar-coated. It will feel difficult. It feels difficult for me as well. I was telling Dave that I did not sign up intentionally for this message, but it just happened that it's my my turn today uh, to preach. I was... Uh, when Pastor Charles told me that I'll be preaching uh, this Sunday, maybe about two months ago, I was like, yes, it's, 
Hebrews 12, starting from verse 18. A great passage, great message. This will be great. But the Lord wanted to discipline me in many ways to teach me uh, something today. So it's a, it's a difficult message. Paradoxes in the Bible. You are called sinner and you are called saint. If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to increase, you must decrease. If you want to be a father of many nations like Abraham, guess what? Your wife is barren. If you want to be exalted, you must humble yourself. You want to be wise? You have to be fool for Christ's sake. Do you want to live? You must die. If you want to be strong, you have to be weak. And this message today is about really... Living by dying. Dr. Helen Rose Veer is a, a, an English uh, physician who heard the call of God to be a missionary to Congo in the 1950s. She had a lot of preparation. After medical school, she studied tropical medicine where she can take care of people in tropical areas like the Congo. A lot of work, a lot of prayer, a lot of preparation. Her pastor and her church prayed for her and commissioned her to go. And she was very excited. And sure enough, she did go. Um, a lot of work was being done. Hospitals, clinics, nurses being trained, doctors being trained. People are being treated uh, who otherwise would just basically simply die. But then all of a sudden, civil war broke out in Congo when she was doing this mission work. But then all of a sudden... Pain and suffering came. Uh, rebel came to her area. They ransacked the clinic. They stored everything that she has built. Everything that was being done over those many years was, was leveled. She was taken hostage. Uh, they destroyed her building. But they didn't stop there. Multiple, several men, one after another, horribly and horrendously and physically abused her in her own bedroom. And they didn't stop there. They tied her naked to a tree to make mockery of her. In that middle of despair, she said, I felt God had failed me. Surely he could have stepped in earlier. Surely things did not need to go this far. I reached what seemed to be the ultimate depth of despairing nothingness. I know this is a very graphic, very difficult story. By the grace of God, it doesn't end there. But I wonder, I wonder if you or I were in her place, what questions we may come up with. The passage of today assumes some questions and has some questions and provides the answers. But I think you may be asking about where, where is this suffering and pain coming from? For a wonderful Christian missionary who gave up everything in the comfort of Europe to go to an area where she can serve. And a question of who? Who is in charge? Who is in command? Who has authority over a world that has pain and suffering? A question of why? Why even do we have to deal with pain and suffering? Why did these Hebrew uh, Christians have to face suffering and hostility? And a question of how, how do we then embrace 
or deal with sufferings. Those are the four points of my sermon today. Question of the origin of suffering. Question of the authority and command over suffering. Question of purpose of suffering. And lastly, question of dealing with, or even better said, embrace suffering. This is a message for Christians. This is a message for believers. This is a message for people who have held fast to the confession of their faith, but nonetheless will have to deal with suffering and pain and discipline. The first point is about the origin of suffering. Where is suffering and pain come from? People said this is Christianity's Achilles heel. If God is good, if God is omnipotent, how can he allow suffering and pain and evil like this? Why didn't he intervene to help Dr. Rose Veer before this horrendous event? The Bible provides answers. The world provides answers. And a word of caution for the young people here and even old people here. It is very easy and very tempting to accept a very nicely packed answer from the world to the origin of suffering and pain. But we must, we must hold fast to the word of God. The Bible speaks of the original sin in the garden as the herald event of a fallen world of agony and despair. Our church fathers many decades ago talked and explained and taught us about the problem of suffering, such as Augustine or Augustine and Aquinas. Augustine coined this theory that's called privation theory. He said, God is good. He created everything perfect. Evil is only the absence of good. An example he gave is darkness. Darkness is not an entity unto itself. If we turn this room, if we make this room dark, what we need to do is just one simple thing, is to turn off the light. Darkness, illness, blindness can be an example of the absence of good. Augustine said that all existence is good and comes from God, so that evil is simply the refusal of existence. He basically said for things to be, it means things are good. If they are being it means they have been created, and if they have been created, they have, must have been created by God, and He did not make a mistake. God is both omnipotent and good. Dr. R.C. Sproul weaves a lot of the Augustinian teaching into uh, what we uh, all know as the Westminster Confession of Faith. God, from all eternity... Before you and I were born, before Dr. Rose Veer was born, he knew what was going to happen. From all eternity, according to his own holy and wise counsel, foreordain whatsoever comes to pass. And if you're familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith, I have omitted two words because I want to highlight them because they are so key. What did I omit? Freely and immutably. Freely means he was not forced to allow this. God is not entertaining an arm, uh, arm wrestling with Satan and whoever wins gets his way. And maybe somehow with Dr. Rosevere in that episode, he was wrestling with the powers of, the, of, of Satan or the powers of darkness. And this one episode he lost. Therefore, Dr. Helen Rosevere suffered. No. 
It says here that freely and immutably, meaning without any change. So God is good. We have to hold to that. We cannot um, bargain around this. God is omnipotent. He does ordain that evil exists. If we see evil here in the world today, if you turn on the news and see all the evil, and it's around us, and it's inside of us sometimes, as we, not sometimes, really all the time, we have the remnant of the original sin, then he must have, in his sovereignty, saw that it is ultimately, and the word is, is very key here, ultimately, it is good that there is evil in the world. Don't shoot the messenger now. This is the word of God. That's, this is what we believe. And this is what many, many examples tell us. It doesn't, I'm not saying that evil is good. I'm not saying that good is evil. What I'm saying that God can ultimately turn this ugly scene that we started our sermon with to a beautiful scene. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. This very verse did not get suspended when Dr. Roosevelt was physically and horrendously abused. So believers living in a fallen world, pain and suffering exist. This is not news. Let's set aside all the theological theories that we talked about. The question now that brings me to the second point. Is God a mere spectator? Is he just watching and cannot do anything about it? Some people theorize that. And sadly, some so-called Christians would, would have you believe that God set the world in motion. He created everything in seven days, six days, and rested on seventh day, and then took a step back. And the rest, he just cannot do much about it. The second point of the sermon is God in suffering. God in suffering, where is he? As you look back on our passage here, uh, you will see that it says, consider him who endured from sinners. So here it is, the, some of the origin of, of suffering, where sin is, there is hostility, there is suffering. Christ himself endured this suffering. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted yet to the point of shedding your blood. So that's the, really where the, the scripture here in this passage tells about the origin of the suffering that we have. But then we continue on to talk about God, where is he in suffering? And that's mainly in verses 7 through 11. It is for discipline you have to endure. So here is one big indication of the presence of God in suffering. It's discipline. Uh, last week, just a few days ago, I was in the hospital having some kind of a concern about process improvement. How to continually improve processes in the hospital to improve patient care. And one of the methods that they taught us is uh, the five why. If you just continue to ask why about why something happens in your workplace, you may get ultimately after five whys to the ultimate reason why this thing happened. And this is... Uh, by the same measure, I would advise us also to continue to ask God. The message here is, to, is, is not about you need to just shut your mouth and don't ask any questions. Humanly speaking, 
we will struggle. And humanly speaking, we will ask God questions. And we have examples of, of that. We have prime examples of that. So it talks about discipline as a reason. And then you ask, why? Why discipline? Because that's not enough. I cannot just tell somebody or my children that this is where we, we will get to that later as an example or parallel between God's dealing with his sons and daughters and the father's dealing with his children. The children will ask for the reason for the discipline. It's, it's also, you can continue probing this and the passage here, beyond discipline, it talks about holiness and goodness. And that's the purpose of the suffering that we may have here. So where is God in suffering? Some people would like, including Christians, would like to exonerate God. And they will tell you in many pulpits today that God has nothing to do with suffering and pain and disease and cancer and death. That is far from what we see here in the Bible. I want to apologize on behalf of these preachers when they try to uh, basically act like God. You know, maybe let's just get, get God out of the equation here. Let me defend God because he cannot defend himself. And I will tell you that, oh, he has nothing to do with that. It's all about sin and maybe you don't have enough faith. If you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, you will see that our God... As Dr. Sproul puts it, he measures in suffering. If you look at the Old Testament, the story of the nation of Israel, you will see story after story, event after an event, that you will see God is there with his people. Where do you find Abel? In a pool of blood. Where do you find Noah? Ridiculed and mocked by people around him. Where do you initially find Joseph? In prison. Where do you find Jacob and Moses and David and Hannah and Elijah? Where do you find the disciples of Jesus Christ himself? All but one are murdered. Where do you find the reformers? We will soon be celebrating Reformation Day. Jesus himself is called man of sorrow. This is not a foreign concept to him. Isaiah 53 prophetically says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Does this sound like someone who's stepping aside and letting us deal with affliction and sorrow? And as one of whom men hide their faces as he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Strong words such as wounded, crushed, stricken, smitten, afflicted, Chastisement carried by him. This is Jesus. This is our brother. God exercises ultimate sovereignty over everyone and over everything. Over these horrendous people that violated Dr. Rosevear. Colossians 1.16 By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. The title of the message today, I chose that phrase, Via Dolorosa, the path or the road of suffering. It's this, this is, if you, if you visit Jerusalem, you will see this uh, actual path where Jesus, which Jesus took uh, all the way from Caiaphas to Pilate and many other stations until it ends in Golgotha. 
Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, he will have a blast. No, didn't say that. He will have a great time and he will be in victory after victory after victory. No, he did not say that. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, in medicine, when we ascribe any procedure or any test to a patient, we have to get a consent. We cannot just um, drag you against your will and do this surgery or this procedure. Even if it's almost, if it's even emergency surgery and you're able to talk, we still have to get a consent from you. And sadly, in our Christian uh, Christianity today across the country and even in the world, when we ask people to come to Jesus, we give them a terrible informed consent process. We don't tell them what it entails. We tell them it's all going to be rosy, just like Pastor Charles was talking earlier today. It's not an easy path. You don't get a hammock and just relax and you will be just fine once you surrender your life to Jesus. So whether God permits or cause suffering, it's always, always for His glory. Isaiah 45 says that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And here it is. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. In some of the other versions, this is the ESV, but other version, I believe King James says create evil. Uh, but I think that's the appropriate translation is calamity not evil. I am the Lord who does all these things. Number 12 in the Old Testament, Miriam, when she defied the command of God and tried to kind of sabotage Moses' authority, what happened to her? She was stricken with leprosy. Deuteronomy 28, the entire chapter, a very long chapter, one of the longest chapters in the Bible, I think 60 plus verses, and it's divided into half. One half, if you do this, here, is, here are the blessings. If you don't do this, if you disobey me, here are the curses. God does not need exoneration or absolving when the, we face suffering for Christians. Where is God when it hurts? It's a book that I read many years ago by uh, someone who sadly recently started to deconstruct his Christianity but I will ask the question, where is he when it hurts? He is there. He is there to comfort you. He is there to admonish you. He is there to correct and sustain. He is there where the Hebrew Christians are now struggling. They have been tempted to commit apostasy. They have been tempted to downgrade Jesus. They have been tempted to think of him as just maybe an angel, or a little maybe higher than angel. Maybe we should just go stick back to the Old Testament covenants and rituals. But the writer, he was telling them, no, continue, continue on with your race. But he didn't paint a rosy picture to them. He still told them, you will have struggle. You have struggled. You continue to have struggle. It's not yet to the point of shedding your own blood. I think the best case study for suffering when it comes to righteous people or so-called righteous people or Christian, just like you and I, is the book of Job. God, in His own wisdom, He specified or set aside one entire big book just for the problem of suffering. 
God gave Satan a permission when Satan said, well, look at this guy. Yeah, he's righteous. Yeah, he, he listens to you. He does what is good. But he doesn't do that for nothing. There must be something. Look at all these blessings that you have given him. And Satan says, if I just take this out of his way, if he's crushed, he will curse you. So God gave the permission, and here's again to the, back to the sovereignty of God, to a limit. You cannot touch his life. You will have to spare his life. And Job wrestled with God. He didn't run away from God. He didn't put his fist at God. He didn't renounce God. Thankfully, he didn't listen to his wife when she told him, just go ahead, just curse God. Just curse God and die. What did he tell her? He said, this is foolish. You are foolish. Shall we accept only good and not evil from him? But perhaps the most profound revelation that Job has reached when he's dealing with all these episodes after episode of suffering for all his possessions and his family, Job in chapter 45 says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know. I know that you can do all things. Maybe he heard about it in the past, but now he knows that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job asked a ton of questions, many, many chapters. Job's friend tried to kind of be a self, uh, self-appointed theologians who uh, gave some counsel. And I have to say, some of the counsel on the outside looks good, looks sound doctrinally. They said, Job, it looks like you're, a, you're, a, you're the chief of sinner. What are you hiding from us? You have this facade of righteousness. Maybe there is some sin. There is something that you have broken that invoke the wrath of God. But after all these questions that perhaps Dr. Helen Rosevere asked, and perhaps that you have asked and you continue to ask when you deal with suffering and struggle here, the questions of why and where and when and how, God finally answered Job. Maybe you can call it, no, he did not answer. But I think his answer was so profound. Because it is basically, can be summed up in just a couple words or a few words. I am. He didn't even have to finish the sentence. He basically said, I am. I am your portion. I am your shield. I am your everything. And if it meant that it will take this dark, dark, horrendous valley that you and I will go to, to arrive at a conclusion of who God is, I'm dreadfully, and I'm scared to say it, but so be it. Here, those Hebrews are being contrasted by none other than Christ Himself. And the word that we started our passage here about consider, it's not just like, just take a look at Jesus and see what He did. It's actually study Him, think intently on Him, That's one of the themes of the entire book is 
the person and work and the office of Jesus Christ. So when you are faced with suffering, when you are being disciplined by the Lord, consider Him first and foremost. Because He has endured everything that He did not have to endure. He went through this path of dolorosa, of suffering and pain, where He emptied Himself of all the glory as a, as a man to pay the price. And then the third point, the purpose of discipline, the purpose of suffering. Here it says, it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What an honor, what a privilege. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, it's by definition, here it says, that means that you're not a son. Uh, Spurgeon said, affliction and suffering and discipline will come to you if you are a son. If you are not, if you are not one of his children, you can call hardship not discipline. You, can, you will call him punishment, but not discipline. All this difficult season that those Christians are going through is not a punishment of the Lord, because the punishment has been taken on the shoulder of one man that did not deserve it, but willingly he carried that on his cross. So if you're going through a difficult season right now, or if you will go in the future, don't say it's punishment of the Lord if you are His Son. God is not a capricious God. He's not a whimsical God that will suddenly decide to inflict suffering. He did not decide that one morning that Dr. Rosevear will go through this difficult time. He's not a vindictive God that will get even with you and punish you for your sin or punish you for whatever you have done on that particular day. This poem is, uh, I found, and it's, it's anonymous, I don't know who wrote it, but it's, it, it, it crystallizes uh, what we as men, as children of God, go through when we are tested and disciplined. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch. Watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him. You heard it right. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him. I think Joseph and Daniel and David and Paul and Martin Luther and John Knox and Polycarp and Johnny Erickson Tata, Dr. Helen Rosevear can attest to that. Recently, um, I got to hear about a pastor named uh, James Coates from Alberta, Canada. I think first we heard of him when we went to G3 conference a few years back. And that's a young, uh, zealous pastor who during the COVID uh, lockdown in Canada... If you think it was difficult here, it was much harder in Canada. They will basically shut down all places of worship. And he struggled with his church what to do. And what did he do? He, he obeyed the word of God and kept the house of God open. He ended up in, in, uh, in jail. He ended up incarcerated. He can relate to this passage. So why bad things happen 
to good people. That's the title of a book by Rabbi Kushner, uh, who basically had some explanation that is non-biblical. Uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul jokingly said, I wish somebody, some publisher came to me and tol- told me or asked me to write a book about why bad things happen to good people. He said, it would take me two seconds to write this book. I would just write why bad things happen to good people. First page, they don't. They don't happen because there's no such thing as good people. I was hoping that Rabbi Kushner would have listened to Psalm 14, Psalm 53. That there is no one righteous, no not one. The Sodom and Gomorrah bargain by uh, Abraham on behalf of his uh, nephew to spare the city is an example that Bad things don't happen to good people. No one is righteous, Romans 3 says. So why is it that we go through a season of suffering? Why did the Hebrew Christians here went through this season of suffering? It's discipline and doesn't end there. Discipline in and of itself is not the ultimate goal of God allowing this season in their life to go through. But it's for their holiness. It's for their sanctification. So keep asking those why questions five times until you get to the very root of it. And I believe when you finish asking all these why questions in your life and mind, in those Christians' life, it will end up again. We will reach at the same conclusion. It's the glory of God. Coram Deo, the face of God. It's for the fellowship of the believers with Him as our Heavenly Father. And I'm glad that this passage that we read, it said, talks about fathers teaching and educating their children, disciplining their children. It says that what seemed best to them right now, so here for all the children here in this room, if your parents discipline you and you disagree, you still have to obey. Even if it doesn't look perfect, that this is what seemed best to them at this moment. Another wonderful concept that the writer of Hebrews here talks about is, look at verse 11. For the moment, all disciplines seem painful rather than pleasant. So he will tell us, yes, if you go through this valley, it is painful. It will seem painful. But it's from an approximate standpoint, from a time standpoint now, it is painful. But ultimately, it's for your holiness and for your sanctification. Another title you can put to this message would be Proximate Suffering and Ultimate Holiness. You're suffering, you're being disciplined right now, you're being corrected by God, you're being reproved by God. It's for your holiness and for your sanctification, ultimately. For the moment, all disciplines seem painful. Romans 8.28 put it all together for us and says, We know... That for those who love God, all things work together for good. And sadly, some people stop there, but you must continue. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Joseph, when he was confronted or when he confronted his brothers in Egypt, he told them, you meant it for evil. 
but God meant it for good. Why does God allow these, these seasons of suffering and discipline in our life? It could be because there is sin in your life. It could be just plain and simple. You have a sin in your life that needs to be exposed and God is getting your attention. C.S. Lewis said, God speaks and whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to our consciences, but He screams and cries out to us in our pains. It is His megaphone that rouses a deaf life, deaf soul. So it could be that there is sin, but sometimes it's very difficult to trace back exactly the season that you're in right now of suffering, this disease that you just uh, received or this horrible loss in your family or this broken marriage, marriage or family that just happened to a particular sin. He may use this to correct us, to cover us, or catechize us. We talked about correction. Covering is basically preventing you from going into a path. And I can speak from my own personal life where I faced many difficult times uh, back in Egypt. And when I look back, when I look backward now, I can see the grace and mercy of God stopping me from going down a path that would have had permanent damage. And he also used that suffering to catechize them. Now, this is, this is the catechism for these Christians right now. It's a sermon. We know the epistle to the Hebrews appears to be. It's a sermon to people that need to be taught the purpose of suffering and the purpose of struggling. So he may want to catechize you. He will catechize you. He will continue his call upon your life to make you that saint that we just talked about before. John 9, verses 1 through 3. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? False dilemma here, right? So it's not, it's neither nor. So they asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Just similar to what Job's friends told him. What sin did you commit? And what did Jesus say? It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You can take this passage and think about a season that you're going in right now, you have, and you will see that ultimately, if you are in his hand, if you are in the palm of his hand, it is that God might be displayed even more bright in your life. The last point of my sermon is about how do we then deal with it? Not just live with it or tolerate it or medicate it or numb it, but it's actually how we are to embrace suffering. That's what God is saying. That's what Jesus Christ himself is saying. It is not a surprise. This is the consent. This is the informed consent process in being a Christian. Here in this passage also we have many keys of how we are to embrace it and how we are not to embrace it. What way, in what way we should, uh, we should uh, avoid. First, it says consider Him. Study Him. Study Christ. 
the, the, the teaching and the catechizing that may happen in this season is not going to happen in a vacuum. It's not, you're not going to have a revelation all of a sudden in your bedroom that where Jesus will just speak out loud to you and tell you, this is what is happening for you and this is why. But you have to lean, you must lean on the Word of God, on His Word, on the body of Christ, on the church to sustain you. But here it says, My son, do not regard lightly. In other translations, do not despise. Have you despised the discipline of the Lord? I have sometimes. You murmur. You think there is no use for me for this. You think it is, he is not wise in allowing me to go through this season. You think of the chastisement and the discipline as something that's shameful, that you hide from people. You don't share with the, with the body of Christ so that they can come alongside you and help you and sustain you. Or you stubbornly acknowledge it's from God and yes, there's something that you need to work on, but I'm so stubborn, I'm not going to do anything about it today or ever. These are the wrong ways of how to deal with suffering. But also on the other extreme, it says here, nor be weary or basically faint-hearted. Don't be faint-hearted. Do not give up the exertion. Continue to work and labor with Him because His grace is sufficient for you. Don't lose hope in deliverance. Do not also, or do not either, exclude God from it. Don't say, well, it's uh, try to rationalize it outside of the decree of God and the sovereign rule of God. Uh, Marcion is a, a heretic that, hap- that uh, was uh, living um, in Rome in the 2nd century, and he tried to exonerate God and he tried to take God out of the equation and exclude God from the whole picture of suffering and pain. And this man, um, he decided that there is two kinds of God. God is kind of like two tiers. There is this strong, evil, angry, wrathful God of the Old Testament. And then there is the loving, peaceful God of the New Testament. And Let us just remove everything that has any mention of the Old Testament God as we put together the canon. He actually put together a Bible in the second century that excluded everything and every mention of God of the Old Testament. Every mention of the Old Testament scripture in the epistles, he was the king of copying and pasting. Uh, Somebody uh, called him uh, Satan's firstborn. I think that's Luther who said that about him. But thank God, because of this difficult time in the church life, as a lot of heresies are coming together, that woke up the Christians at that time to say, we have to put together and preserve the canonicity of the Bible. Also, do not embrace pagan worldviews. We have talked in the book of Acts many months ago about the asceticism, Uh, being a ascetic view or the stoic view or hedonistic views, those are all worldview, pagan, non-Christian views of dealing with suffering. Some of them will say suffering is illusion, it's it's unreal. Christian science is one of those. Uh, Interestingly, one of those Christian science teachers said, when I sit on a pin and it pierces my skin, I dislike what I fancy. I feel. 
I think it's funny. They will not ever acknowledge that there is pain. They will think it's all in your head. Stoicism is just put yourself together and you can do this on your own merit. Hedonistic view is let us just drown all the pain, all the sorrows in pleasure. This is not what the Bible espouses. The Bible says, first, don't be surprised. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Here it is. From the get-go, Jesus said, you will carry the cross. But take heart because my yoke is light. Do not demand a suffering-free life. In other words, continue to be amazed by grace. If you sing amazing grace, is it really amazing? And if it's truly amazing, then we are not to demand anything from God on any ground. Do not demand suffering-free life. So what do we then do beside not, not despising and not being faint-hearted? Consider Christ. Obey. Follow. Hold fast. Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come for after me, let him deny himself and take up, take up his cross and follow me. We are to obey. We are, in summary, approach it just like Christ did. If it is possible, let this cup pass, but not my will, but yours. I would like to think maybe one day when I become a very mature Christian that I will just pray for more suffering to become more holy. I just don't think that is going to happen on this side of eternity. But we can pray just like Jesus, our brother, prayed. Not my will, but yours. Grieve differently. God and the Bible doesn't promise that Christians will have no tears, but the Bible promises that when He wipes away the tears, He will wipe it for good. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 4, But we do, not want to be, we, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others. It doesn't say that don't grieve. You should not grieve as others who have no hope. When we grieve, we grieve with hope. But the most beautiful word that I see in this passage, and I hope that you caught your attention, is the sonship. You are called His Son. He is your Father. You are not an illegitimate son. If we were reading this passage from King James Version, illegitimate, illegitimate children is... Now, basically a curse word, and I'm, not, I'm going to refrain from saying this word, but it's actually in the Bible, in King James. Illegitimate children. Isaac was a son. Ishmael was an illegitimate child. Think of the ultimate, and do not think or dwell on the proximate. Think of the ultimate. Don't think about just what is happening today only. Finally, run to Him. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. You know, I said through the sermon today that suffering is not end and of itself. It is not the final word in anyone's chapter. If you have a biography of Charles or Mahrus or Knox or 
or Brian, anyone here, and you have their life story, if you are a child of God, you're the last chapter of that book will not end just in suffering and pain as the title of that. But it's God's glory. Helen Rosevere, I know we were all worried about her, but God took care of her. She went back. She continued to serve. She was healed. She saw God's glory in all of that. I don't know I don't know what exactly she did or how she reached that, but by God's grace, she was able to reach it. Revival broke out in this area. I know we don't like to use the word revival too much, but there was revival there. The Holy Spirit moved. People repented and came to Christ. Romans 8, 18, I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing. If you put everything together, all the pain and suffering that you and I may endure for His glory, it is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Do me a favor. If you didn't have any time recently to dwell on the glory that awaits you and I, do that. It will be good for us. It will be good for our soul. Psalm 23, and I'm glad that Pastor Charles picked this today. This is where I want to finish. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death. He didn't say God is going to keep me from going down the valley of shadow of death. Even, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Let us pray.